And now, the Andy Greenwald Podcast. Andy, Andy. Hello, my name is Andy Greenwald. This is my podcast. On Friday, October 17th, Cinemax will begin airing the second season of The Nick, one of the very best shows on television. For those unaware, The Nick is a medical drama set in 1900 New York City. Its subject is history, but its strengths are psychology and a deep, deep horror, mostly about the human body. My guest today is a brilliant actor who plays Dr. Algernon Edwards. Andre Holland, welcome. Hey, glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Very excited to have you here. Very excited to have The Nick back in my life. Although, as I said to you before we started... The, the break was good for my soul. Like, it's, it's an intense watch. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely one of those. You need a little, little, little separation. You, you need know? some time. You yeah. need to heal in yeah. all senses. Um, we're going to talk about season two. I'm excited to talk to you about it. Um, but I do want to go back a little bit to begin and just ask you about the you're getting the part, basically. How and when you were approached for the part. Did you read the script before or after you heard the word Steven Soderbergh? How did that work for you? <laughs> Good question. I was actually uh, in Europe at the time. I had just done a, a play in Italy, and I was on my way back. And... Uh Stopped off in Lisbon randomly just to spend a few days. By the way, this is already... It's already a good story. You're right? making acting sound like the greatest job in the world. I know. I, trust me, it's a lot darker than I'm describing. <laughs> um, but uh, I was in my hotel, and I got the email from my agent saying, you know, there's this amazing show coming up. It's, you know, Steven Soderbergh, Clive Owen's doing it. There's no script available, but we have, like, a couple of pages of scenes that you can read. Interesting. And we need it by tomorrow. So... <laughs> Um, so I, you know, was scrambling around trying to like find somebody to help me read the audition sides and asked my, the hotel maid if she would help me. No. Yeah. And, uh, that was interesting. It helped that the sides were in Portuguese, right? Well, yeah, no, they were not at all, but they, (laughs) they sounded like they were when we, you know, did the audition. So, um, that didn't quite work out. So I ended up going out to the lobby and sitting there for about an hour and a half and like trying to eavesdrop and see if anyone came through speaking English. No. And I, you know, spotted this young British couple who were like, I found out later were on their honeymoon. And I went up to them and, and somehow talked the woman into coming to my hotel room with me. Uh, <laughs> Again, <yeah. laughs> acting sounds like the greatest job in the world. Well, her husband was there watching, so, you know. <laughs> acting sounds like the weirdest job in the world. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Um, so anyway, so they helped me, like, put the audition on tape. So I sent it in and got really good feedback. I flew back to New York a couple of days later and was told that Stephen wanted to have a meeting. So we met together for a lunch. Uh, we talked for about an hour and a half, mostly just about like, you know, a little bit about the script, but mostly he just wanted to know about me and the type of person I am and what my interests are. Uh, and then about an hour and a half later, he invited the writers and his producer in. So we sat for about another hour and again, just talked a little bit more about the story. And then I think it was the next day I got the call saying that, uh, that I was the guy. Wow. Well, Portugal aside, how quickly did you realize that this was a different sort of project? I mean, obviously the names that were mentioned to you already made it stand out, but I would imagine in your conversation with Stephen, he must have made it clear even then that he did not intend to, to shoot this like a normal TV show, that he did not intend it to look or feel like a normal TV show. Yeah, I mean, the, one of the first things he said was that, you know, it's, it, there's 10 episodes, but that he wanted to shoot it like a 10-hour movie. Right. So, you know, it's all shot out of sequence. Um and that he, you know, he was really interested in the time period. And as the writers were as well, it was incredibly well researched. I mean, you could tell the writers were, you know, just full of all this information about the time period and, and really were, were passionate about getting all the details right. Mm-hmm. So that right, right away let me know that it was a different sort of um, different sort of approach. And then, you know, after I got the, the rest of the episodes, just, you know, I couldn't stop turning the pages, you know, especially as related to my character. Mm-hmm. I felt like, I mean, he was a three-dimensional guy who... Um, you know, was was fighting against things that feel very close to home to mm-hmm. me, um, and doing it with like class and dignity and grace. And at the same time, he's like quite egotistical, and you know, he's a full character with a real point of view, and that that was really exciting to me. I've read you speak about this before, and I think an interview you did with the Guardian recently, and I, mm-hmm. I wanted you to expound on that. I think that's such an important point to make that mm-hmm. one of the most important things about Dr. Algernon Edwards is not just that he is brilliant and mm-hmm. capable. It's that he is often prideful and boastful and often behaves in foolish, self-destructive ways, too. He is, yeah. There is space for him to be a full human being. Yeah, absolutely. And that's not often the case. You know, yeah. usually there are things I've been reading recently, and, you know, a lot of it, it's just sort of like two-dimensional snapshots of a person, and you don't get the full picture. So in this, in, in this case, you know, Algernon is definitely a, a full human being. And that's one of the things that people often say, you know, like with the, the fighting that he does in, in season one, which is quite self-destructive, and he deals with the repercussions of that in season two um but something about that rings so true to me and feels so so accurate you know there's a there's a quote that um 
James Baldwin, one of my favorite writers, says has that he wrote uh, that says to, to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage most of the time, yeah. and th- that's what I feel. And so when I read it as I, you know in Algernon, I thought, man, this is this is spot on. There's something about that first season and your performance, certainly in the character, in which he spends. 70% if not more of his screen time turning the other cheek repeatedly mm-hmm. and if you keep turning that cheek you're going to want to you're going to want to hit back hit at back some, in some way point yeah and, you know or and and this was one of the more fascinating aspects of the character or make the violence physicalized make it mm-hmm. overt make it real because mm-hmm. the violence that is inflicted upon him mm-hmm. even in the tony halls of the you know the beautiful mahogany halls of the nick that that is violence that's done to him yeah but it is not often overt yeah absolutely and that you know i'm so glad you said it that way i probably couldn't say it better myself but that is something that really spoke to me you know and and in researching the character it forced me to go back and look at my own life and ask myself Mm. some questions about things and i remember i grew up in alabama in a very small town in alabama and there were some things that that i've turned the other cheek Mm -hmm. about (laughs) and swallowed down over the years and as i look back at them now i realize that a lot of these things were trauma you know what I mean they were yeah. vi- acts of violence and you know fortunately I didn't take it out in you know back alleys the way that Algernon did I didn't you know turn to self-destructive behavior but I know a lot of people who did you know mm-hmm. a lot of my friends did and still do you know mm-hmm. and I know that it's a result of being treated a certain way over mm-hmm. a long period of time so again it just it feels so apt the way that they wrote this character well I think it's true for for any human being alive that yeah. things Things are don't vanish. You take things into your body. You take them on. You take uh, mm-hmm. slights or insults, mm-hmm. and they have to go somewhere. It has to be processed somehow. Absolutely. Um, and that's one of the things I always find fascinating about the great um, performances. And I would include your performance on the show among them. Um, it's hard enough to do that as a human being in your daily life. To mm-hmm. do it, you know, at a I don't want to say at a remove because I don't want to. I don't know too much about your specific process, but mm-hmm. to do it for another human being within your body has got to be awfully complicated and confusing to keep track of it. Yeah, yeah, it does. And at a certain point, you know, the the two the two of them sort of start to meld together. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I found myself getting off work and, and walking down the street or being on the subway, and you know, little things would happen, like little yeah. things that that on a normal day I would just sort of you know brush off as being oh whatever, you know, that person's having a bad day. But these things would happen, and I would find myself reacting in this way, like feeling this this rage, frankly, yeah, um, that I think was a part of a result of sort of living in in Algernon's headspace for so long. In addition to the um, emotional research that you were able to do in your own life, mm-hmm. did you dive into um, textual research, to period research before beginning yeah. season one? Yeah, for sure, man. We I read a book um, called Low Life. Um, which is sort of about the history of New York at the time. So I learned a lot about the city and just about what, what life was like. Uh, we also did a ton of, of research on medicine. We had uh, at our disposal this guy, Dr. Stanley Burns, who's the medical consultant on the show, who's really incredible. He has a, a, a four-story townhouse on the east side of Manhattan that is like, I, <laughs> I mean, it's technically a medical archive, but it could also be like a house of horrors. Yes. Because, <laughs> what's, what's the difference? Oh really? my, exactly. I mean, you go in and he's got instruments, I mean, like these crazy instruments from like, you know, long ago, he's got photographs and journals Oof. and I mean, so much research, so much material about this period of history. And he's an absolute expert on it. So I sat with him for, you know, for weeks and we, you know, went through all of the procedures that we had to perform in the show. And he, you know, went through step by step telling us way more information than we actually <laughs> wanted or probably needed to know. Yeah. Um, just about like the, the, the actual sort of the goriness of it, how long it took to do these procedures, really how long these doctors would be standing for, yeah. how many patients, you know, would have been lost to this before they actually figured out how to do it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we were very, very steeped in the, in the, the, the research. One of the things that's so unsettling about the show is you, it causes one to, you know, if, if I go to a doctor's office or if mm-hmm. I am in a hospital and all the things that I, you know, would at once at one point f- have found reassuring—the mm-hmm. white walls, the white coats, the general, you know, the softness <laughs> of the tone—all of the things. It's not just that the Nick has upended them because I see the white coats splattered with blood. It's that right. I realize it's theater. 
Oh, it, yeah. it used to be an operating theater. It still is. We're, it's a performance that we've been lulled into security with, you know, because mm-hmm. we all believe in it and we buy it. And you suddenly see the way this began. Nobody knew what they were doing. Nobody, man. They were like, they were figuring it out on the fly. And that's you know? not that long ago. It's still New York City. It's not, this is not yeah. ancient Greece. This is, this is our city. <laughs> this is uptown and downtown and places hey. we recognize. Exactly. And it also causes me to con- reconsider, you know, one of the things that the show does so well um, in relation to your character and, um, especially a lot of the, uh, the, the female characters and mm-hmm. immigrants that we see, is it really interrogates these social structures and the arbitrariness of them and how mm-hmm. rigidly they were enforced. Mm-hmm. But when I think of it, this is a little complicated, and I'm doing this on the fly, but uh-huh. I, I'm just thinking about the way we cling to certain structures even today. I'm clinging to the white walls of the hospital that's making me feel safe. Does mm-hmm. it make, does it, is it arbitrary? Yes. Then you go back 100 years and you see the way people treat Dr. Edwards. You see the way they treat the women. Totally arbitrary, but it's making people in positions of power feels safe it's mm-hmm. it's kind of the same thing isn't it yeah I, I think it absolutely is i mean obviously a lot of it is fear-based yeah. you know and i think that again like that's one of the, the the sort of dopest things about the show is that you know you you look at take episode seven of last year for example the get the rope episode right this, this is the this is the wild uh the riot, riot episode, episode. One yeah of the most amazing hours of tv last year i i totally agree i think it's incredible and but you know you look at it and it, it starts off with this let's call it a misunderstanding between like a cop and a citizen a black citizen yes which then leads to you know an act of violence which leads to you know a, a riot in the streets and ultimately ends in black people being hunted yeah <laughs> You know, literally openly hunted. Yeah. And, you know, you turn off the TV or you change the channel and you see, you know, things that are not so different happening. Yes. Right now. Um, so, again, that yeah, there, there's all these really sort of interesting and eerie parallels, right, between what we're doing on the show and what was happening in 1900 and what's happening today. And you're right. Like, you know, there are things that we build that, that, that we think sort of give us this illusion of comfort mm-hmm. and that we've like moved on from this place. But and yet, like, we really haven't, you know. Do you appreciate the opportunity to to play with these issues? Well, not play with them, uh, handle these issues in a in an overt way because it is not racism in the world of the Nick is not subtext. Mm-hmm. It's text. It's right there. And you know, I, I, any other medical show said in any other year, these issues would still be there. They are still in our life today. Yeah. But I wonder when when these issues are pushed down into subtext, they're not overtly talked about in the script. Then people can misinterpret. You know, the writer could have one intention, the director can have another, the actor can have a third, mm-hmm. the audience can have a fourth. In the Nick, it is you know not unlike what happens in the operating theater. It is laid bare. It is right there yeah. in front of us. I really, really appreciate that because from my own perspective, you know, I, I don't feel like it's subtle. I don't feel like raci- like my experience yes. of racism and of it is not subtle. I can tell right away yeah. you know every, and it happens just about every single day of my life when yeah. i feel that that fear or that anger or that hatred coming at me you know yeah. and so i appreciate that the show really takes it takes it head on and, and and i also love that it's not we don't just talk about it as like you know oh white people didn't like black people and like that's sort of the end of it it's more complicated than that like at the beginning of season one you know algernon is is caught in between these two worlds right yes. he goes to work and he's treated a certain way because of the color of his skin but then when he goes back to the place that's meant to be his home at the Diggs Hotel the black people who live there don't understand him either and so he's you know he experiences racism from that side so Mm -hmm. he's literally caught right in between a rock and a hard place and he doesn't know where to go and I think we see that even even today Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things that uh, that's been on my mind lately that I I was reading a thing this morning about uh, (laughs) There's this, this sort of thing that, that people have been talking about, the rise of the black British actor, for example, right? Uh-huh. There's been these articles coming out saying how, you know, all oh, the reason why black British actors are so much better and, 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 and Hollywood is really sort of, you know, luring them in is because they're better trained than black American actors, right? Right. Which is untrue, first of all. Right. But then it also puts, you know, the black American actor in, in this really awkward place. It's, it's, it's divisive, mm-hmm. you know, it, not unlike what Al John is experiencing, mm-hmm. right? So... Anyway, I just said that to say that, yeah, I love that we're taking it head on because, like, there, this stuff is deep. It's so deeply entrenched in our in our thinking that, like, we sometimes don't even understand that by saying something like that, that in and of itself is literally dividing our community. Yes. Yeah. And there is no relief, you know, and there's no relief in the show, which is another thing I appreciate. Obviously, yeah. it is an unsentimental show in a lot of ways, but it's not as if um, Algernon has a a third way there's not a safe mm-hmm. haven for him at any point and one of the things i was thinking about a lot as i watched the first few episodes of of season two is his relationship with cornelia and her family yeah 
when he when there's a scene early on in season two, and this doesn't spoil anything, when Doctor Edward stands in front of the board mm-hmm. of, of the Nick, and um, Cornelia's brother is now on the board, and there's a lot of naked hostility towards mm-hmm. Algernon in the mm-hmm. room. Um, Cornelia's brother, whose name I don't remember the name of the character, Henry. Henry says mm-hmm. something. You know, he says, "Oh, Algy, welcome." You know. And that in itself is a diminishment because he mm-hmm. is not there as Algy, his childhood friend. He is there as Dr. Edwards, the acting chief of surgery. Right. He thinks he is being his friend, and it's not helping. There is no help. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And again, because as well-meaning as, as the Robertsons are. Robertsons, yes. They don't, they don't understand the whole picture, you know? Yeah. I'm glad that you caught that because I, that was something that I felt as well, you know, that like he doesn't get that Algernon has to be – he literally has to be a different character. Mm-hmm a different person mm-hmm. when he's at work than he gets to be when he's at home, you know? And that's that double consciousness thing that W.B. Du Bois talks about, yes. you know? And it's so uh, in the forefront of the show. There, there's a scene also when Henry says, uh, it, you know, I, he thinks he's being very generous and, and helpful to mm-hmm. Algernon in his, in his uh, quest to become the head of surgery and uh, the permanent head of surgery. And I think your character says something like, uh, this is taking it slow. Yeah. And uh, he says, oh, I thought this would be good. And, it is just watching privilege play out in such an intense way because he's mm-hmm. saying, I don't want to take it slow. And it's a reminder of whose foot is on the gas. Right, 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 it's, right. It's, it's really powerful stuff happening on a lot of levels. That is a very small line in a mm-hmm. very long and larger episode. Yeah. You're a smart dude, man. Uh, you caught all this stuff. I love I'm, the I'm show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm watching it close. Um, let's talk about um, how that double consciousness and the performance plays in a, in a, you know, in a moment-to-moment way because I, I want to double back to something we, we touched on in the beginning which is that this show is not shot like other shows mm-hmm. um, for people who don't understand what we're talking about when we say that episodic TV is generally written and produced in order more or less mm-hmm. um, the writer's room is going they'll write a script it's in production and then they'll start writing the next one and it goes and goes and goes the Nick like a movie all the scripts are done in advance mm-hmm. and then what what steve can i call him steven yeah you can call, call him steve. should i call him the ma- maestro Mr. the maestro yeah we call, i like to call him ss okay ss <laughs> that feels that feels very intimate what he does is he um with his production team breaks it down basically mm-hmm. so that if you are shooting god knows how many scenes 14 scenes in thackeray's house those are all shot at the same time right and then you right. move on to the next location so you're shooting scenes from episodes one eight four nine concurrently this is very intense and not the tv does not work like this right um how in the world do you keep (laughs) track because i I spoke to clive last year at this time Uh and he talked very specifically about his challenges tracking his character's addiction cycle because Mm -hmm. scene two in his house maybe he's functioning scene nine he is not and then he goes to go back what what you have to do is, to my mind, just as challenging because you have to be, you know, uh, presenting the character in different ways in different circumstances, but also the accumulated weight mm-hmm. of the season's violence and indignities. How do you do that work? Yeah. Well, for me, the the the, the first step was I, I had to create, and I think Clive did the same thing. Had to create a sort of chart for myself. Basically took you know a wall in my apartment and then I did the same thing a wall in my dressing room and uh-huh. put you know every single scene that I had on little note cards, all of episode one, episode two, all the way down through ten, uh-huh. so that on any given day you know if we were working in episode one and then jumping ahead to episode six, I could look and see in front of me exactly what the sort of emotional journey is, where the character's coming from, where the character's going, so that I could keep track in my head of of, of where he is. Um, so that was the that was the sort of big thing. Okay. Um, what we had at our advantage is that we did have all ten scripts ahead of time, so we got to study all of the scenes, and we you know you know we knew where it was going, so we could make choices that sort of um, parsed out the the emotional journey rather than sort of you know spinning it all right at the beginning. It strikes me as a process that not every actor would be excited about, and maybe not even every actor is capable of doing. Because um, New York Magazine has a great piece that Matt Seitz wrote, being on set with you guys and. Mm-hmm. Um, people talking about just how fast SS works, how quickly he works, how many <laughs> yeah. pages you go through every day. And I think SS says that he thinks actors like it because you're not sitting around, you're working. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're doing the work that quickly and that intensely, that means you have to do all the other work mm-hmm. in advance, right? And that is Absolutely. not not everyone, I would imagine not everyone is cut out for that. Yeah, I think a lot of actors, you know, the ones who I've met in TV who work in that sort of traditional way, I, I think a lot of people do tend to do work on the fly. Mm-hmm. 
um, which you you just can't do in this situation. Mm-hmm. You have to prepare ahead of time. Like, because listen, the moment you show up, first of all, SS is already there. It's our this, the set is already lit. Mm-hmm. You know, he's ready to go. So you know, oftentimes we'll, we may be called in and said at you know six thirty a.m. and it'll say, oh, we're going to start shooting at eight. But by seven thirty, they're calling saying, we're ready, we're ready. Why aren't you dressed wow. yet? You know, so. There's no time to figure it out on the fly. You literally, you have to make your choices ahead of time. But for me, I love working that way. And I think most of the cast, you know, of this show loved working that way. Um, I come from a theater background, mm-hmm. and so it feels like doing a play, you know. That, and that's the way, you know, when you approach a play, you have to make the decisions ahead of time. You have to know where the character's going, right. where he's going to end up, and, you know, you don't have the luxury of just sort of figuring it out scene by scene. Right. And, and this show feels a lot like that. So for me, I felt right at home, you know. Well, one of the best things about the show that really sets it apart is the uh, aliveness, the liveliness of mm-hmm. all the performances in every moment. And mm-hmm. particularly, um, again, this is, I'm quoting Matt Seitz again. He's a big fan of the show as well. He wrote about how um, your face is another television show happening within the television <laughs> show. And I think that's oh, really that's true. Sweet. And it's, um, it's a credit to your performance. It's a credit to the unique nature of the way the show is shot. Mm-hmm. But you are alive in every scene. And you mm-hmm. have to be, and that 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 speaks to me of a theater theater training, right? That is what that's yeah. coming from. Yeah, I think so. You know, I when I first came out of school, my my very first job was working. Actually, I was still in school. It's up to my first year of drama school. I, you were here at NYU? here in New York. Yeah, I went to NYU for my master's, and uh, after my first year, I did a summer at Shakespeare in the Park, and uh, I had one line, and <laughs> and I stood in the back, and I was you know the spear carrier, but you know. I took it. I mean, I had wanted that opportunity for so long, and I took it so seriously that I had an entire drama going on in Did my you? brain. Oh man! Like I had a, my character had a backstory. Who, who was Spear Carrier number three? <laughs> well, tell me more. I'll have to pull out my journal and okay. show you. I'll tell you his whole. I'll tell you his mother. Everything. Like you know. Did you have a wall of your of your apartment just or your dorm room in that case uh, devoted to the? Uh... <laughs> Not quite a wall at that point, but I definitely had like <laughs> a journals okay. and but yeah, a partition. Um, but. Uh, so like that way of working that, that's just like that's the way you're trained in theater that you know there there are no small actors every single person has a part to play mm-hmm. um and and i think i bring that to everything that i do certainly to this you know and i guess the attachment that i feel the affinity that i feel for algernon i mean i, I love this character and mm-hmm. i feel a real responsibility to get it right mm-hmm. and just because he's not the focus doesn't mean his life isn't isn't still moving and so yeah. i have a responsibility to keep that going you know um so yeah, I'm glad that you that Matt and, and you guys appreciated that. Tell me about working on these sets that are naturally lit, that are so evocative of the time period of another time period in another place, with SS and the way that he uses <laughs> you that say camera. That well, man, you got it. You're, you're... I, I'm not comfortable yet, but by the end of this talk, I will be. Um, if you get a call from him. Don't call me. <laughs> don't you dare. It is maestro. Yeah. Um, he. The camera is so physical and mm-hmm. alive, um, and I imagine he is too. He's operating it often and on a dolly and in, and in your face. I mean, it seems to me that that the camera is regularly another actor in the scenes with you. Mm-hmm. How how is that? How different is that? Man, it's it's amazing. I mean, first of all, you know, he the set the entire set is lit, right? So typically on a TV show, as you know, you'll you'll sort of shoot half of a room, mm-hmm. and then once you turn around, then they'll move the lights and they'll move the furniture and everything to accommodate for the the other coverage, the opposite side. Mm-hmm. But that's not how he shoots. Everything in the the entire room is lit. So when we turn up, you know, he'll say, "Okay, let's rehearse it," and the actors will do what they want to do. We'll create what we feel like we want to do, and then you know, he's able because of the way the set is lit to capture the most interesting thing that's happening in that scene at that moment. Yeah. Um, Which may not be what was written overtly yeah, in the script. I mean, exactly. I said that that's the most interesting thing. Exactly. I mean, oftentimes, you know, you'll, I'll read a script and think, okay, this is my scene. This is my moment. Yes. And you turn up and the camera is on somebody's shoelace. You know what I mean? <laughs> or, it's on, or it's on somebody. The guy. Yeah. You just have no idea what he's going to cover. But then when you see it, it's like, oh, yeah, that's actually what the scene was. The scene is better that way. Um, but so there's a flexibility, right, and a pace that he's able to mm-hmm. work at because of that. He does operate the camera all the time. There's occasionally a, a B camera that that he'll you know bring in for mm-hmm. certain shots, but he's always there with the camera, which means there is a a real intimacy that he develops with the actors because there's oftentimes if there's a you know a camera operator and the director's way across the set in in a tent or at Video Village watching what's happening, right. you have to send somebody to go get him and bring him over if you have a question, or you have to you know stop everything and go over to him him or her and ask a, you know the question. Whereas with Stephen, he's right there. So a lot of times. I might say, uh, hey, uh, Stephen, do you think that? And he'll just go, mm-hmm. Yep. You know what I mean? We developed this shorthand he where knows. we don't even have to say, you know, what it is. But 
it's all because he's right there. And he's so incredibly physical yeah. with it. You can't imagine, man. He like contorts his body in these crazy ways to get to get certain shots. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, it's a wonder that he's, you know, still walking because he's <laughs> literally like. You, well, well, that's you why know. he retired, quote unquote, right? Yeah. <laughs> to, to get better. <laughs> to get better, yeah. Yeah. And that was what struck me so much in the first season. There was just one scene, I, I, I've talked about it numerous times. I can't stop thinking about it, but there was mm-hmm. a scene with, between uh, a birdie and. Um, uh, uh, why am I blanking? Eve Houston's character. Oh, uh, uh, Lucy. Nurse Elkins. Yes, Nurse yeah. Elkins. Thank you. And they were talking about some, you know, flirty, romantic, whatever. And you mm. could tell that the camera was bored, that this was uh. not essential. And the camera swings around the room to look at the electric lights, just to look at the world. And it's telling us what the story is in the midst of the story in a way that is really challenging, you know, for a TV viewer. It's not what we're expecting. Yeah. Um, and I particularly wanted to say a similar scene in the early going in season two that as you told me earlier, you may not have seen, mm-hmm. but uh, there's, you know, a traditional two shot, mm-hmm. um, two actors talking uh, between uh, Cornelia and her brother Henry, right when Cornelia has returned. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. a two shot that is uncomfortably a three shot in on the Nick with you in the background. Oh, and it's pretty okay. amazing because the it's once again where the important part of the scene, the emotional meat of the scene, is coming from your face. Mm. What they're talking about is doesn't matter it's oh i thought you were taking this train oh where are we going to live you know it's it, it it's actually not that essential right right but we're right, getting right. the emotional story coming from you um yeah. with your reaction there are you have you you haven't seen the scene were you surprised that was happening or you know it's you... funny i i haven't seen the scene but hearing you talk about it i think i know exactly which thing you're talking about and yeah it, i remember the day we shot it and i yeah and the delicacy with which Stephen wanted to make sure that i was in that frame in yes. the background yeah man he he just finds this way of like layering in what's really you know so many different sort of sort of versions of what's happening what different people's points of view are right um he's just he's the maestro man i don't know what to say he's he's the man we you mentioned the uh, the seventh episode last season which was mm-hmm. just this incredible tour de force can you talk to me a little bit about how that episode was experienced by you and the crew and the cast filming it mm-hmm. versus what we saw because you know as you're alluding to this is constructed in his mind in his camera on his laptops and iphones mm-hmm. apparently mm-hmm. How much of what we saw was there, and, and what was that like? Well, pretty, as I recall, most of pretty much what is in the episode is what was there. Yeah. I mean, you know, as you know, he shoots for his edit, right? So he doesn't really because he edits it himself. He edits his, ed, edits it himself. Edits it himself exactly. That's, 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 one, of those, that's one of those old drama school. Uh, <laughs> I know, right? right? I know. Um, so he does do that, uh, but also the way he films it, he he doesn't really. There's not a lot of coverage, right? So. He literally shoots exactly what he's going to cut to mm-hmm. in the in the actual thing. So, you know, there's not a lot of fat. So basically, what you saw is what we did. Um, the experience of doing it was it was it was fun. It was fast. There were also some moments of like you know real heaviness in the room mm. because again, man, you you know you walk on. I don't know if you remember the bit where the the, the rioters outside are trying to get in and mm-hmm. they end up throwing a chair through and you know through the window and breaking, and then we have to go down into the into the sub basement because the whole room is being used. Mm-hmm. It feels remarkably real, mm-hmm. um, and I think that the emotions that people are feeling at a certain point they do. You know, we know we're all playing characters, but it really starts to feel palpable. Um, so it was fun, and we had a great time doing it, but it, it definitely, um, that the air was charged. I'm sure. Um, I want to go back to something you said at the very beginning, which was that post-Portugal, mm-hmm. uh, you had lunch with Stephen, and he, he talked to you about you and, and, and your interests. I, I'm, I'm, again, just struck by the descriptions of the set that I've heard in which, you know, it's, you guys are working. You're there to work. You mm-hmm. get the work done. And so much of what, everything else that feeds into it is done on your own time and separately. Yeah. Um, you know, Stephen obviously has shorthand with you as an actor and as a master master director, um, but it seems like he trusts the actors to be prepared and to bring the fullness of their character. How much of that first lunch do you think was him getting a sense of what you would bring, and how much of that were you able to bring? I mean, he wanted to know about you, mm-hmm. you as how much of you, I guess, is what I'm asking. How you work as an actor, who you are as an actor, but also who you are as Andre, and what that would how that would be brought to the character. Yeah, I think I think a lot of it was the latter, just trying to figure out who I am as Andre and what I would, you know. I, you know, number one, I, 
everybody who works on that set are, are like the most down to earth people. They're really kind yeah. people. There's no screaming and yelling and arguing going on. That's nice. Everyone's just there to do the to do the job. And so I think a big part of it was also just him trying to figure out what I would be like to be around for, you know, ten, twelve hours a day. Yeah. <laughs> five days a week, you know. Um and we got on we got on really, really, really well, as does everybody. Mm-hmm. Um but you're right, it does it does take a level of preparation and mm-hmm. a, an extreme level of preparation. So I think he probably was trying to gauge that as well. Um, but then, you know, when, when Clive comes on set, you know, he he really set the tone for the entire season because he comes on and he's so well prepared, so well researched. You never see him walking around with with, you know, sides looking at peeking at lines. Mm-hmm. He already knows them backwards, forwards, inside out. He's asked all the questions that he has to ask. So he's 100 percent ready. And that, of course, makes everybody elevate their game. Yeah, you know, um, yeah. So those two guys really set the tone for us. I, I'm I'm very struck by his performance because the thing about Clive is, you know, he he looks like James Bond, but uh-huh. he wants to be a character actor, and mm-hmm. it, that performance is Thackeray's essentially puncturing holes in the image of the you know, the, the perfectly perfectly coiffed, put together, um, handsome master surgeon. I mean, he, yeah. he's he's essentially parodying what people think who people think he might be he might be yeah he's, he's committed to doing that in a way that is very very visceral yeah in the first season and certainly into the second yeah well as you get to know clive he's you know that's kind of how he is as a person he's i mean he's a remarkably well polished handsome guy yeah. well dressed you know but at the same time he's he's a really sort of down-to-earth regular dude you know mm-hmm. um from like you know he's not from like a, a sort of fancy place you yeah. know he's a, he's a real kind of blue collar dude you know yeah. what i mean and i think that he brings that element of of um sort of rawness to to the characters that he plays so I, and i admire that about him i admire the way that he's crafted his career you yeah. know he had he's gone against type he's gone with the things that really speak to him and that move him when he could have made other choices so i really I, I respect that a lot speaking of not being from uh posh places tell me about alabama tell me about growing mm-hmm. up in alabama and how what it obviously this could be days of podcasting for you to tell yeah. me the full story but um from alabama to um nyu getting your masters what was that journey how how and when did you did you fall in love with the stage did you come from a performing yeah. family in any way it's funny i i uh I, you know i don't come from a, a performing family per se my mother worked at the steel mill for 36 years my father was a sale is a salesman um and they're just, you know, hardworking Southern folk. And, uh, you know, my, my parents put me into a drama program when I was when I was quite young, I think partly as a way to keep me out of trouble. <laughs> a lot of my friends who I grew up with were getting into trouble, so mm-hmm. they wanted to keep me busy with that. I didn't love it at first, but when I got ready to graduate high school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a drama teacher who said, well, have you ever thought about, you know, pursuing acting? And I thought, well, I didn't even know you could do that. To be honestly, I didn't mm-hmm. know that you could study acting in school, in college. And he said, "Well, I went to Florida State, and I think it's a great program. So you should check it out." So I went home and told my mother, and she said, "Well, let's go." So she cranked up the van, and we drove to Tallahassee. Whoa! Looked around, and she said, "What do you think?" I said, "Well, I I think I like it." And she said, "Well, let's figure out how to get you down here." And so, Whoa. you know, they um they put a lot on the line to give me that chance, and um, and I'm forever grateful to him for it. So I did that for four years and I, while I was there I studied abroad in London uh, again like you know somehow like managed to get a scholarship and like weaseled my way yeah <laughs> got to London saw a bunch of plays you know studied Shakespeare and, and had a wonderful time ended up staying there for another year after I graduated college again like seeing plays and studying and taking classes uh, moved to Paris for a few months worked with a theater company there then moved back to New York this is very Algernon that last part very Algernon right <laughs> Uh, and, you know, a friend of mine from undergrad was applying to graduate school. Again, I had never heard of grad schools. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of on a whim applied to NYU, got in, and they said, well, if we accept you, how are you going to pay for it? And I said, man, I ain't got no idea. So uh, they ended up giving me a fellowship to study there. And, uh, you know, it's been it's been a long journey. But, yeah. uh, but I, and sometimes I wake up and I think, man, I don't know how how this all happened, but I know it started with my, my parents believing in me and, and risking everything for me. That's an amazing story. Yeah. I am curious, though. You said you you spent that time in London seeing plays, so you must have seen the, the black English actors who the <laughs> press is trying to pit you against. What is? I just wanted to come back to that because that, that's been lingering in my mind. What What is that? What are people saying when they say that? What are they referring to? Is it that well, David Oyelowo played Martin Luther King and that signifies something? I, I don't... I think what it started as, you know... 
and I've been hearing it for a while, but it really got loud, I think, around the time when Selma came out, when I right. heard people saying, some people saying, well, why are they, you know, casting British actors to play Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King and, and Governor Wallace, you know? All of them, by the way, are incredible actors. So right. I'm, nothing I'm saying is, like, at all disparaging against them. No, no. But I think when that, people started talking about that then other people say well the reason we you know are going this way is because black british actors are trained they come from a theater background and they're they bring something to the part that that um you know black american actors simply don't don't bring which is complete bs because you know i mean page one the fact is that every spring all the drama schools across this country you know the the yales nyus acts carnegie mellons northwesterns you know, Juilliard. and on uh, Juilliard, and I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Every single year, they graduate classes of actors, and within those classes are actors of color who are trained. Mm-hmm. They've done Shakespeare, they've done Ibsen, they've done Shaw, Chekhov, and on and on and on and on and on. And the only thing that they're missing is, as Viola Davis said, opportunity. Mm-hmm. All of those actors might not end up at the big agencies, at the CAAs and the ICMs. They might not get agents out of school because there's only so many slots that those that those agents have to service those actors. So. What happens to them? You know, they're still here. I happen to know a lot of them, yes. you know, and, and, you know, for anybody in the casting community who's having a hard time finding them, call me. I'll put you in touch. So, yeah, that's that. I'm, and I'm really, really passionate about that because it it's divisive, as I said, number yes. one, it's really divisive. And it's also a real, I think, slap in the face to the to the people who have been out here working and hustling and knocking on doors and doing plays downtown for a hundred dollars yeah. a week. You know, it, it it's just really is really disrespectful. It also, I think, is disrespectful because it's moving the bar in an unfair way. Because and I, even as a you know exceptionally trained actor, I would imagine you'd agree with me that ac- actors can learn and be exceptional in all ways. Mm-hmm. You know, not everyone needs to go through a traditional. Absolutely. It, not everyone needs to know Ibsen to deliver an incredible performance. Absolutely. And when you suddenly move the move the move the bar, mm-hmm. oh no, well you can't do that. I mean, when when did Leonardo DiCaprio do Ibsen? Exactly. I mean, he's a great actor, but exactly. no one's saying he's not. But. That's a little bit. That's a little sketchy. You eliminate all kinds of people. You know what I mean? Exactly. This yeah. is the thing that made me that I, I really took away from the Emmys, and I, and I would imagine you were watching with interest too. I yeah. mean, Viola Davis's speech was incredible, mm-hmm. but to me, the 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 in some ways the more subtly moving thing that happened was when Regina King won, and mm-hmm. she's an exceptional actor and always has been and mm-hmm. has been working steadily for so long. She was on two two seven. Absolutely. Yeah. And so when she's up there, she is proof of what Viola Davis is saying. Just give her a part. Give her a real part. I mean, I don't know her. I don't. I don't know her agent. But but I I was when she was on The Strain, which I think again, you don't Mm -hmm. need to say this. You're in the business. I think is a very very dumb show. (laughs) She was playing like a part that wasn't a part. It was just a woman in high heels yelling for three Mm. episodes, but not even yelling important things. Yelling at a character who was a secondary character who she worked for. Mm. She's the same actor who won an Emmy. Yeah. Give her the part. Give her the part. It's not. It's 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 not rocket science, but it, it is. That's the next hurdle that doesn't seem to be moving in any yeah, direction. It really doesn't, and it's it's complicated, man. And I and I, you know, I hear I've for so long I've heard so many different versions of why you know why this hasn't happened or why it's impossible for or why it's so difficult for mm-hmm. for black actors and actors of color to get these opportunities. And frankly, man, after 10, 15 years of it, I'm tired of hearing it. Mm-hmm. You know, I just the other day I heard. <laughs> I heard uh, there was a, a script that I read and I really liked and responded to, and I said, "Man, I'd really love to pursue this part." And the response that I heard was, "Well, um, the producers realize that they need to make they need to get some. I'm quoting it almost word perfectly. They need to get some diversity in there somewhere, but we're just not sure. They're just not sure yet which part they want to make ethnic, right. which is one of the most reductive things I think I've ever heard. Yes, it feels you know." It, makes me uh, you know an actor who spent you know 15 years of my life training and preparing for this it's it's as though i'm just a, a spare part hanging around waiting to be plugged in somewhere you know i'm worth more than that as are many of my brothers and sisters and though you what you bring is more than your training and your talent you bring mm-hmm. the wealth of experience that you yourself have experienced and have lived and to me one of the most interesting things about this season of network tv which is dreadful by and mm-hmm. large is that um Empire took off and became a sensation in the spring, which was too late to have any effect on the scripts that were being developed for this fall for mm-hmm. the broadcast networks, mm-hmm. but not too late for it to have an effect on the casting. Mm-hmm. And you begin to see the limitations of that, where true diversity and the opportunities provided by diversity, which to my mind are as much creative as anything else, the stories you can, that can be told, yeah. it is not about taking a part that was written, as most parts by people in Hollywood, let's be honest, are as 
white person mm-hmm. and just casting someone else. That is not the same thing as writing a part for a human being exactly. or writing the part to be a human being. And I, 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 I feel bad putting you on the spot for to speak on these things, no. um, but this must be hugely frustrating to get scripts. I mean, what sort of what scripts do you get and how what is your process to yeah. deciding what you um, want to do? First of all, I don't mind talking about it. I, I'm glad that I get to talk about it. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Oh, Thank um, you. I mean, I get a, I, look. I have great, you know, a great team of people who work for me. So I, I, um, I, I do get a variety of things. However, I will say that that most of what I get tends to be um, <laughs> tends to be either the the friend of the guy, yep. or uh, the friend of the friend of the guy. Yeah, a peripheral character, mm-hmm. you know, who is either, you know, a comic relief in some way or just the sort of voice of reason who comes in and says something really wise and then disappears, doesn't have any, you know, sense of history, doesn't know, have any point of view. He just kind of appears. They're, as you said, they feel as though they're parts that are either A, were written white and they're trying to get, get some color in there. Mm-hmm. So they just sort of plug somebody in and it almost doesn't matter whether he's black or Asian or, you know, India. It doesn't matter. Um or they are parts that are <laughs> feeble attempts at trying to trying to, to, to sort of clumsily write what a black person's experience would have been like, but in a peripheral way. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So the character is there and he's talking about, you know, being black. His, the, but, but like they don't really give the real estate in the script. They don't really give it time to, to develop it enough to where you really understand who the person is. You just understand that like he's angry about something or he's, or he's you know, he just talks about the fact that he's black yeah. all the time. But you don't really the, understand the where it's, Exactly. You don't really understand where it's coming from, why he feels that way, what he's trying to do with his life, what's in the way of that. He just is there to, as a functionary, basically. He, he brings a big bag of, of history in with him, dumps it on the table and leaves. And then leaves. Exactly. And what I'm interested in is finding parts where, you know, if you're going to deal with that experience, let it be closer to the center. Mm-hmm. Don't don't have it on the periphery. You know, it's, it's, it's more important than that. And it's actually, as you say, it's more interesting than that. There's a wealth of stories that we could tell that we all could benefit from yeah. if we would take the time. And if we're watching so much TV, I am because it's my job, but everyone is... Don't we want more stories? Don't exactly. we want more stories to entertain us and to educate us? And yeah. I, I really like the choice of word you used, which was clumsily, mm-hmm. because I do think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but often scripts that are in line with what we're talking about, they're not written from a place of malice mm-hmm. necessarily um, right. or, or, or anything like that, but they're, they're written out of ignorance or, or clumsiness. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not a consideration. You know, right. and and I feel like that goes back to these are scripts written by the the Henry Robertsons of the screenwriting world, right? More or less, well meaning, very well meaning, yeah. but you need to actually have the conversation, and that's exactly. where we are, and that and I feel like that is a a fuzzier area, that is a fuzzier area to exist in. Absolutely, because that, what that what that ends up doing is that you know if an, if I if I for example do take that part that is right. well meaning but not but clumsy, then that means that my role I, I have to speak up about it. So that my role on set becomes like the person who's speaking for all black people. And uh, you know what I mean? And so my acting, my like choices, you, you know, am I playing the right objective? All of that stuff becomes like secondary, tertiary. Right. The most important thing is I have to protect this character and make sure that what I'm doing is something that I can be proud of. And that, do you know what I mean? So the number of times that I've been on set having these discussions, really uncomfortable discussions with like white directors and white actors, mm. you know, who don't really want to hear it. <laughs> You know, right. and I don't really want to say it because be I just want to be an actor. Yeah. I just want to do the part. Like my job becomes that, you know, which I I don't want that to be my job. Can I want to s- I want to act. That's your that is your job. That's my what? actual job. Go to yeah. Italy and Portugal. Exactly. Um, <laughs> scoop up newlyweds. Um, <laughs> can you talk about this experience specifically in relation to two movies that were very really interesting movies you did last year? Mm-hmm. Um, you were you were in the cast of Selma. Um, mm-hmm. Gave a fantastic performance. Thank you. Um, you were also in Mike Binder's uh, Black. What became Black or White? Mm-hmm. Um, also an exceptional performance. Uh, Selma, um, predominantly African American cast. Ava mm-hmm. DuVernay directed it. Mm-hmm. Historical drama. Black or White, um, written directed by a white guy from Detroit, um, mm-hmm. starring Kevin Costner. Very different movies, very different goals. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the whether the similarities of those experiences or the contrast of those experiences? They were polar opposites. Yeah, working on Selma was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. With Ava DuVernay at the helm, it was it was beautiful. All of the characters 
had depth mm-hmm. and they they had they had history they had a point of view when you look at that movie and you, you know the, even the smallest of scenes the scene the first one that comes to mind is the scene between uh, Lorraine Toussaint who played Amelia Boynton and Coretta Scott King you know the one they're taking a walk and she talks about um, her being prepared Coretta was saying she's nervous about you know having to go into this meeting with Malcolm and and she gives this beautiful speech you know mm-hmm. Amelia Boynton does and just that little moment you know sort of even though the movie's not about Amelia Boynton, mm-hmm. it crystallizes sort of who she was and what her point of view was. And that's across the board for all of them. Um, the sense of camaraderie. Mm-hmm. I mean, we worked so hard. All of us did. We came in early. We stayed late because we wanted to, you know. And that started with Ava, with the script that she wrote. Um, in Black or White, it was a, it was a different experience. It was a, it was, it, and it I don't was, mean to be reductive to compare mm, the two. No, um, no, not at all. It just was. It was. It was different. And I, and I don't want to be insulting to you know anybody because I think, again, every you know people who worked on that movie were well-meaning. But the fact of the matter is, what I read on the page was a two-dimensional character. Mm. Um, they didn't intend for it to be, but that's what it was. And when I spoke up about it, and I did loudly, you know, over and over again. I don't feel like I was hurt. Mm. I thought I was hurt. <laughs> but then, you know, when we got down to actually shooting the scenes that we, you know, were were disagreeing about, the changes that I thought were going to be made, that I was told were going to be made, weren't actually made, you know. And it ended up turning into a real um, mess, frankly, mm. a real power play, you know, where I, you know, the actor on set with probably the least experience felt like I was up against, I mean, I'm, you know, sitting across from Kevin Costner and, Mike Binder and these guys that I'm trying to get them to have this conversation with me about this character that I'm playing and they don't really want to have it because you know they have their own ideas and they you know they say well you know you want to make the movie you, we're trying to make this movie and, and it seems you just want to make the movie that you want to make and mm. I kept saying no man I don't want to make the movie I want to make I just want to make this movie be the best that it can be and if you put this character in here who's two dimensional right flat out two dimensional who's a stereotype basically you know you're shooting yourself in the foot you know, I, I don't know why, you know, I'm the only black guy in this room right now. <laughs> I have some experience at this. Mm-hmm. I don't know why you won't listen to me. You know, yeah. um, so, again, that was a situation where I felt like, you know, although they were well-meaning, it was misdirected. It was it was it wasn't as, as complicated as it could have been. And so my work then became, all right, I'm in this thing. How can I fight? You know, how can I how can I find a way to 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 salvage something to make this character have some sense of of life of feeling you know so that his beha- he isn't only his behavior he right you know and I mean one of the big things that I kept advocating for I said look this guy's got to be trying to get better he's got to be tra- even though he's doing these things now he's got to be trying to turn his life around and I kept they kept saying well no he's this is just who he is this is just who he is he's just he's a crackhead he just does I said no man that's not how it is no one is he's, born just a no crackhead. one is born like that where did he come from how did he get to that place where is he trying to go what is the pain you know? that led to that what's the pain that led to exactly yeah. that's what's interesting about playing a character like that you know the, and if, for drug ad- the, the drugs are the least interesting thing least interesting about drug addicts thing. exactly but you know I mean, look again, at the neck it's, it's ex- you sort of, exactly that's yeah. a, exactly you know that's why I love working on this show because they they go below the surface and yeah. they really investigate what created this? How did we get to this place? You know? Yeah. Um, so that was, and I haven't really spoken about that movie, but I'm glad you asked me. It, it Again, great people, you know, Mike and Kevin and everybody, great people. But I think in that situation, they, they, they should have been much more sensitive to this character. It's Thank you for speaking honestly about it. I, I, I often wonder when I speak to actors in general, acting is the face of, of, of storytelling. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, you are the ones who translate people's words and and. and often you know take the, get the credit or take the blame for for tv shows and movies yeah. um but in many ways acting can be powerless because you are not casting the movies you are not um mm-hmm. producing them you're not you don't have final cut yeah how do you navigate that because you have strong opinions as well you should it is your career but yeah. you know you have to find your own way to carry the Absolutely. Carry the story, carry your truth, and represent yourself while not having the final say. Yeah. I mean, it's my career, but also I do feel it's my responsibility to, like, mm-hmm. my culture and to my family and my ancestors to tell stories in the right way, you know. Um, so I do feel that. And it is difficult because, you know, at the end of the day, what actors do in film, we supply the raw material. Someone else creates the performance mm-hmm. creates the story. Oh, that's true. And, yes, certainly know? in this kind of – that's different on the stage, but – Yeah, exactly, exactly. But this is a director's medium we're in film, you know. So – I feel like, 
my journey in it is from this point on anyway, especially after having worked with somebody as brilliant as SS is that I want to only work with people who are sensitive and who are smart and who have a real point of view about what they're doing. You know, um, I want to work with the best, mm-hmm. frankly, is what it comes down to. And I don't, and you know, I'd love to play big parts. I hope to play big parts. But if that means playing small parts, I'd rather be in a small part with somebody who knows what the hell they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, than to be in a big part with, with somebody who's just trying to make a dollar. Well, um, also, this is, you know, it's, it's a cliche, but people say it. But I think for actors, it's particularly true. It, it, it can and should be a marathon, not a sprint. I yeah. Mean, you want to build a career. You don't want to just ride a, yeah, flash rocket, in a, pan a rocket ship or a flash yeah, in a pan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, what I, I know the Nick is uh, all consuming when it's on. Uh-huh. It, it, obviously, all the pre- all the the prep work you have to do, and then the intensity of the shooting um, mm-hmm. for how many? It's uh, like a hundred days. About, yeah. Well, actually, the first season I think we were seventy six days. That's it was insane. really yeah. If you could imagine, I mean, I'm That's, telling you, it's it's incredible. That, I mean, for, for, I don't even know how to compare that. Like movies don't shoot that quickly, Mm-mm. and movies are two hours, and this is ten hours. Yeah. And I think this, if I'm not mistaken, this year we were. Maybe two days under that. I think. I think it was. Yeah, it's, it's like it's incredible. I mean, it's you know seven, eight, nine pages a day. Like these are athletes. <laughs> this is not acting. This is yeah. a, this is athletics. Yeah. Um. So it is all consuming and it must be exhausting. But um, as you emerge from that, mm-hmm. the fog of that this year, do you have other projects lined up? Are you things you're particularly excited about? Do you or do you do you need a break physically and emotionally <laughs> when you're done shooting? Which I know you should finished a while ago. But yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't feel like I need a break, man. If anything, I feel like I'm hungry. I'm as hungry as I've ever been, and I really want to get into something. Um, but I want it to be the right thing. I want it to be something that's, you know, worthy of my talent, frankly. And I don't say that. I'm not sending myself flowers, but, you know. Um, but I do want to do something that is, is, is on the level. Um, I'm, th- there's a project that I'm working on in, in about the next month uh, with this director, Barry Jenkins, who did this movie Medicine for Melancholy. Okay, yeah. It's his new project, which I'm really excited about. I think he's a very smart director. Um, SS agrees. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, he's a which, good guy to, yeah, to check that I with. check every day with him. So. Um, so I'm working on that with him. And then aside from that, I'm I'm reading a ton of things. I'm developing some projects on my own because I think that also is, is really what mm-hmm. I'm going to have to do. Um, and waiting for the right thing. You know, I, I've turned down some things because I don't want to, as I say, go go backwards i want to go forward so yeah. I'm, I'm just reading and being very very picky well and we've we've veered away from the nick itself for the season two what i've seen is is just as spectacular right before we started taping you you alluded to some things on the horizon <laughs> we, we will not spoil it but i was saying that i have trouble it surprised me because i thought i was tougher than i was uh to see some of the medicinal gore and horror yeah. that is on display you said that i i have not seen anything yet and you got something to look forward to let me tell you <laughs> or dread there's our dread yeah there's a scene i'm not gonna spoil it but there's a scene that happens late in the season uh-huh. that is <laughs> astonishing i mean astonishing <laughs> do not eat at all before you <laughs> before you watch this episode it is yeah it's amazing and this is, this is, you're telling me this, and I've already seen just, You've already free, seen. I've seen free-flowing pus. I mean, oh, yeah. I've seen things I was not prepared to see. Yeah. You're going to see something that you, you, you can't imagine. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. SS told me, he said, this season makes last season look like a rom-com. Oh, come on. And that's true. And you're in the room. And you're in the room. <laughs> I'm in the room. Like, but I'm in the room. I'm there with it. I know it's fake. And yet. <laughs> wow. Uh-huh. All right. Well, that's something to look forward to or run completely in the opposite direction from. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm excited to see it. Um, I, I will send you flowers, Andre. I, will, oh, I hope man. you do find a project worthy of your talent because there probably aren't that many projects out there. Thank you. But I look forward to what's next. And I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for having me, man. I really, really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcast.